Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I had a very uh, request, a very uh, specific request that I could get Ace Collins not once but twice in the month of December, and he was nice enough to say yes. And I'm excited that he's going to be joining me this hour to talk about the stories behind the best love songs of Christmas. And I know you've got your favorite, and I hope I cover it. But if the event I don't, let me know what it is. Uh, send it over. And I will see if we can get Ace to talk about it. 877-933-2484. Ace Collins is a consummate storyteller. He's written over 100 books. And we're always glad to have him on the show. Ace, welcome. It is wonderful to be back with you all again. Have you uh, been? Can't, can't wait to hear what the listeners want to hear about. Exactly, yeah. I bet your month has been busy, hasn't it? It has. You yeah. know, but, but, but Santa is busier than I am, so <laughs> I'm not the busiest person on the planet. Yeah. So let's let's uh, jump into the stories behind the the best love songs of Christmas. And if we can, would you start with "Come All Ye Faithful"? You know, when you look at a song like "Come All Ye Faithful," you're looking at you know I, one of the most one of the most sung songs at Christmas. It's not number one on the songs that people sing the most, but it is one that has, I, I think spells Christmas to some so many different people who go to the services. And I am one of those who just absolutely, uh, you know, loves the song. And I sang it on Sunday in church and it, it just resonates. There's a majesty about it. And so once you find out the, actually the story behind it and you, and you, you're involved with it, it's even more, I mean, uh, you know, Oh, come all you faithful is a song to me that kind of echoes in a way. I, it's a kind of a bookmark for me between that and, uh, and O Come, Come Emmanuel, because I think they both tell the story. It, it is, they've both been translated into more than 150 languages. Wow. They both are archaic as far as they've been around a long time. And John Wade, who wrote this song, was a man who was caught in the middle of a holy war. And in 1745, he had to leave England because the Catholic Church had been outlawed in England. He was a Catholic. And he went to France and began to uh, actually do research on old, old songs. And he found a song that he had never heard before, and he had it published it. He had it published. And all kinds of people believe that it was written by somebody like St. Bartholomew or somebody like that. And it really wasn't. It was it was some monk somewhere a long time ago had written it, had been filed away in church records and, and not been found. And the first place it was ever sung was actually in 1860. It is sung with a large audience. And that was at the Portuguese embassy in Paris. So people assume for decades that it was a Portuguese song. But really, it is an ancient song written by an ancient cleric. And that's one of the reasons... I think that it is so um, popular to this day is because it's historically accurate. So many of our carols were not written by people who had studied the Bible or even had access to a Bible, and this one does, and this one in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, 
you know, date back centuries to individuals who wrote songs for services, never actually realizing that millions upon millions of people would hear them. And by the way, this was the first song ever recorded electronically. Hmm. And that made it one of the first Christmas hits on records. Before that, of course, you sang into a big horn. Well, they invented a process where you could actually record electronically. And this Christmas song was recorded by the American Association of Glee Clubs. And there were thousands of singers on this. And it was released, ironically enough, in the summer of uh, about 1928, 1929, somewhere in there, and became a million a million record seller because so many people wanted to hear what electronic recording sounded like. So they bought this song in the midst. They bought this song in the midst of, um, you can take it if you need to. I don't need to. Okay. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the story behind it. As far as fantastic story, the development of it, it's, it's biblical. And so there's no doubt where the inspiration came from. Yeah. Uh, Ace Collins is my guest. We're talking about the uh, stories behind the best love songs of Christmas, and his book is just a gem. And it's got thirty talks about thirty one different songs in his book. But I bet he can uh, take your request too if you've got a song you'd like him to talk about. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four is the number to text. Uh, Ace, who is the good King Wenceslas? Ah, uh, well, if you actually tra- if you actually trace Santa Claus's family tree, you're, he's going to show up in it because okay. you've got him and St. Saint, and Saint Nicholas of Baria, Nicholas of Baria that dates back to 300. Wenceslas states was a few hundred years later, and he was a duke in Bohemia whose name I will not attempt to pronounce. Uh, and every Christmas Eve, this duke would go out with his um, staff, and they would take food and uh, wood for the fires um, and little presents like clothing and, and bedding to the poorest of the poor in that area of Bohemia. And he, we know him today because a song was written about what he did. They renamed it King Wenceslas. He was not a king. He was a duke. And he really exemplified what we are supposed to do, not just at Christmas, but every day of the year, seeking out the least of these and meeting their needs. It's, it's part of our calling. And so, which is the same thing, by the way, that Nicholas of Baria did, except he actually went out and sought out the needs of children who were hungry or children who didn't have clothing or socks or shoes or women or young um, teenagers or young tw- women in their 20s who couldn't get married because they didn't have a dowry and left gifts for them to feel fulfilled their needs. And both of these characters are, are who Santa Claus is based on. So Santa Claus is based on two of the most important characters of that exemplify Christian giving in history. Wow. That is very cool. All right, I've got another one for you, and that is this one. I have a feeling this might have something to do with the military, but I could be way wrong. I'll Be Home for Christmas. I'll Be Home for Christmas was actually inspired by a man who was in college missing his high school sweetheart. Yeah, was completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, you're right in the next way. Okay. And he he came up with the idea, and he played around with it. Then a couple of other songwriters got a hold of it, and it took all three of them to get it together. By the way, a little bit of trivia here. One of the songwriters who helped write this song was instrumental in, in putting together the group and writing several of the songs for the group, The Platters, in the 1950s. Oh, sure. Uh, anyway, it's 1940s when they finally got around to writing it. Um, 
And Dean and uh, Bing Crosby heard it, uh, heard the demo record and recorded it in 1943. It's only 12 lines long. I'll Be Home for Christmas being released in World War II, though, made it the consummate World War II song because it did frame the heartache, the loneliness, the insecurity that was a part of all people's lives back then. Because with so many of them separated, not just separated by, by overseas fighting, but there were a lot of women and older men and older women who were separated from home by going off and working in defense plants and doing other jobs that the men had left behind. And so it was a time of separation during World War II. And this song hit a note and became Bing's second great Christmas hit. The first one being, of course, um, A White Christmas, which was released the year before. Uh, I'll be home for Christmas, 12 lines. The line that confuses most people the most is, and presents on the tree. And what that means is presents were smaller back then, and you actually could tie a present that you were giving someone to a tree. And it was very exciting for uh, people to go over to the tree and find their present on Christmas morning and untie it and take it down and then unwrap it. Mm. Of course, with the advent of things like uh, electric trains, that became impossible. Yeah, Ace, when we just talk about recording artists, and this probably would apply for the last hundred years, if you want to be a music legend, you pretty much have to have a Christmas album, don't you? You do. You, you've got to find that Christmas hit somewhere. I yeah. mean, I mean, uh, Bing Crosby charted hundreds of times. He had some incredible hits uh, that sold millions of copies back in the in the 30s and 40s and and continued to have songs that charted even up in the 60s. And yet we don't play any of those songs anymore. Very few people have heard, you know, uh, when the gold of the moon and things like that. Um, you know, so when you listen to his Christmas songs, he comes back to life and becomes very important. And you start to understand the impact that he had on, um, on society back then and the entire pop culture world of the 1930s, 40s and 50s. But if he hadn't had White Christmas, I'll Be Home for Christmas later, Silver Bells, we probably wouldn't actually be listening to Bing today. And, That's true. And a classic example of that is Dinah Shore, who charted over 400 times but never had a Christmas hit. And so, therefore, you never hear Dinah Shore even on satellite radio anymore. That's and true. yet, And yet Dinah Shore was a monster recording artist who had a lot of hits. Another classic example of someone who is still remembered, but who had not a single signature Christmas song was Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra, therefore, is not heard as much as his buddy Bing, uh, uh, Dean Martin is, who at least had a, had a secular Christmas hit that still played on radios. Mm -hmm. And of course, Nat King Cole has several credible songs that he's recorded at well, Christmas. Yeah, and Nat King Cole probably owns his Christmas persona to, to a man who was writing a musical uh, in 1946, and it was the hottest day of the summer. And Mel Torme, who a lot of people remember now from watching Night Court on TV back in the 80s and 90s, he would make appearances there much more than to remember him as a jazz vocalist and an incredible songwriter. But Torme and a friend of his were playing around with, uh, with ideas on how to stay cool during a hot day, and the lemonade wasn't doing it. And they were wearing Hawaiian shirts and Bermuda shorts <laughs> and sweating still. And so they both grew up in New England and they started talking about things that were 
identified with winter in New England trying to cool themselves off. And after four or five of those things they came up with, like chestnuts roasting on an open fire and Jack Frost nipping at your nose, they realized they were writing a song. Wow. And, and they finished that song in about 35 minutes. And Torme immediately wanted to take it to Nat King Cole. He had an argument. Um, his co-writer didn't want to do that. He wanted to take it to Bing Crosby, who had already had two monster Christmas hits. And he didn't want Nat King Cole to get it because Nat King Cole's music was not played in the South. Mm. On, uh, and so he argued that you will make a lot more money if Crosby gets it than if Nat King Cole does. And Torme wouldn't give up. Nat King Cole recorded it that summer. It was released in October of that year. It topped the charts. And it became a song, by the way, that broke the color line on many radio stations even before Jackie Robinson uh, broke the color line in baseball or Rosa Parks opened up buses for people in, of color in the United States. Jack, you know, this man, Nat King Cole, made Christmas a lot more colorful by breaking the color line for Christmas music. And Ace, uh, I think Nat King Cole was in his early 40s when he died. He, he was. He died of lung cancer. Yes. Uh, but he had another big hit. And that was Caroling Caroling uh, that was released some years later, I think in the early 50s. Mm -hmm. And so he had two hits that you still hear on radio today. Yeah. Uh, his daughter, Natalie, cut a cut a uh, version of his song, The Christmas Song, as well. It's a very good one. That's beautiful. Ace Collins is my guest. His book is called Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas. We're going to continue our discussion with Ace after a short break. Christmas music today with Ace Collins. He's written an incredible book called Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. My first request that's come in, Ace, is the 12 Days of Christmas. Yeah, the 12 Days of Christmas are interesting because we do not know... Yeah, the board's been taken away there. A little hijack. Um, we do not know if the 12 Days of Christmas was actually a code song that was written as a code song or became a code song later. Uh, it was used in the Catholic Jack Church for Frost years when the Catholic Church was outlawed in uh, England as a way of teaching uh, some of the beliefs of the Catholic Church, uh, which were universal beliefs as well. But you weren't allowed to teach anything about the Catholic Church in England at that time for fear of being drawn and quartered. And so if the song existed, they turned it into a code song. Someone may have written it as a code song, but each one of those 12 gifts represents something that's an element of faith and an element of biblical truths, uh, including, you know, the partridge in a pear tree actually is Christ, the only um, bird that would lay down its life for its nest. Uh, mm -hmm. When you get to the two, it's the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you have the two, the two things. The four is the, is the Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, the, the, the four gospels. You get to the ten, and we can't, don't have time to hit all of them, but the ten uh, represent the Ten Commandments. You know, the ten lords are leaping, the lords being law. law. The eleven were who took, who took it out? The eleven disciples. Remember, it's the twelfth disciple betrayed Jesus, didn't take the story out. 
and they were the 11 pipers piping. So you look at all these different elements and they had meaning uh, that was very, very, very particularly touching for those in the Catholic faith, but the people, other people who were singing in England thought it was a nonsensical song. Um, the, the thing I can't find out in doing all the research is, was it developed as a code song or not? I mm-hmm. don't know. Or did someone take it like many of our Negro spirituals and turn it into a code song? Um, the Negro spirituals, a lot of them were sung right before someone tried to escape for freedom. Uh, and and so that may have been the case with this song. It was actually kind of trans, transformed after uh, it was written. Yeah. Ace, when we were uh, talking about Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I think there was something you said last year, which I was so wishing I could have recalled, because this was brought up in a discussion recently. And I thought, where is Ace Collins when I need him? And fortunately, oh, yeah. you're here You're here now. So um, I think well, it was the author of the song that was mortified that they they called it what it was? Yes, there was. You know, Charles Wesley, who started the Methodist Church, basically was one of the founding fathers of the Methodist Church, wrote that song. It's a beautiful song. But nowhere in the original text was the word angels. Uh, and the, the, original, the original read, Hark the Velkin Ring. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and Velkin is, is heavenly host. That's a word for heavenly host. Okay. And, and it was the heavens ringing, the heavenly host ringing, not the angels singing. And Wesley, who was, who was such a stickler on detail and making sure everything was right, was therefore somewhat, um, well, not somewhat, really upset. The, the publishers changed it to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you know. And uh, later, by the way, publishers actually hooked it up with a Mendelssohn song that was written to salute the printing press. And so the music you hear is saluting the printing press. You should be singing at Velkin, not Angels. And so Mendelssohn probably wasn't real happy that his song got hooked up with a, a carol either. And so either way, it doesn't matter because it's become one of the most important and most sung Christmas songs of all time. And it's it's kind of nice to hear angels singing rather than Velkin ringing because we don't <laughs> know what Velkin is. Yeah. You know, So um, we've kind of lost that in terminology, kind of like, you know, God rest you, merry gentlemen. Everybody listens to that and wonders why would God want happy people to sleep when if we actually knew the the meaning six, seven hundred years ago in England when that song was written, um, um, God rest, rest meant make or keep as well as, as sleep. And so it's God make you merry gentlemen. It makes sense that way. But it also Robin Hood and his merry men out in the forest or, or eat, drink and be merry or merry old England also had different meanings back then. Happy people were generally people who were secure, and that meant you were wealthy, and peasants had a really, really tough life. That didn't mean they didn't find some moments of happiness, but, you know, it was tough out there for them. And so um, merriment was associated, therefore, with greatness or power. And so we should probably be singing, God rest you, merry gentlemen, this way, God make you mighty, gentlemen, let nothing you dismay remember Christ your Savior was born on Christmas Day. And by the way, the reason the English say Happy Christmas rather than Merry Christmas, even though they don't know the reason now, if you go back six, seven hundred years ago, Mary had several different meanings and Happy only had one. So they wanted you to have a happy Christmas. In the United States, Mary has only meant happy ever since the uh, it was brought over here f- by the English. And so we say Merry Christmas. They say Happy Christmas. Hmm. Ace, was Handel's Messiah, was that originally a Christmas song? Uh, Handel's Messiah was originally a song written by a desperate man who was 
who had once been a legend. Handel was the Elvis of his time when he was young, um, living in England. He was of German background and went to all the great parties, and his music was heralded as being the most popular in the world. And then what he wrote, which was oratorios, came out of style, and he had overspent. He ended up on the wrong side of town. He was sick. He wouldn't answer the door because there were always bill collectors there. He was afraid he would die in a debtor's prison. And a man named Charles Jens, one of his last friends in the world who would even associate with him, sent him a letter suggesting he write a new oratorio, all based on scripture that was foretelling the coming of Jesus that was found in the Old Testament. And um, having nothing better to do, uh, this sickly man sat down over about two weeks and did just that. But he knew he would never perform it anywhere, or at least that's what he thought. But another one of his few friends that were left actually contacted him and asked him to go to Ireland to conduct a series of concerts to raise money for the poor. And he did this. And when he did this, he took the Messiah with him. It was performed there. And what ultimately happened was that um, you had uh, this particular song take root in Ireland. The people in England heard about it. They invited Handel to to premiere it in London. The king, who was James, uh, went there, listened to it, stood up when he heard the Messiah the first time, and we've been standing up ever since. To get to your point now, now that we've done all this, this oratorio was continued to sung, be sung at music festivals long after Handel died and was sung at Easter for decades. And then people realized it was a gathering point for folks, and they started performing it at Christmas to raise money in England for for the needy. And churches everywhere started doing that. Also, orchestras and and concert choirs did it. And since that time that it got switched to Christmas, it has raised more money for the poor than any other piece of music ever penned. And by the way, and this is fascinating, think of this. This is a song that has come to help feed the least of these. And when he wrote it, Handel was one of the least of these. Wow. That is such a good story. I just love that. So we're going to take a break here in just a minute. So I don't know if I want to get you uh, started into another uh, song. So what I do want to do is invite anyone who has a favorite Christmas song that you may be wondering what the origin is of it or what I can learn about it. You can text me that song to 877-933-2484. My guest is Ace Collins, and he's written over 100 books. But this one that he's written is called Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. So we'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue with Ace Collins.
Collins is my guest. We're talking music today, and I'm loving this. He wrote a book called Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. Ace had a question come in, and the question is, I remember hearing a legend that a favorite ancient carol has an angelic origin. Ace, can you tell me if you've heard or know what that carol or legend is? Well, you know, I have heard so many different legends about Christmas that it, it you know, there are, <laughs> and a separating legend from fact is often, is often tough. But I will tell you this, that there is a song that we sing today, Gloria, uh, you know, Gloria, that's what we know it as, Gloria next Chelsea's Deus, uh, that was sung by people in the church as early as 130 A.D., and if all the church congregations, as a matter of fact, there was an edict after the, that was delivered at that time that said, if you read the second chapter of Luke in, in church, you have to sing this afterwards. That was what the church did as part of their customs. And that song, you know, about the angels, if you think about it, if everybody knew it in all those different churches had been around for decades before that. So I think it, if you... It doesn't stretch the imagination too much to think that the person who wrote that song uh, might have known the shepherds, might have heard Jesus speak, or or might have been aware of the angels that came, uh, and may have had a more a personal relationship with Christ before Christ was crucified. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I do know that part of that song that we sing, that many people call a French carol because it was first published in France. Uh, in about 1700, but um, that part of that song dates back to 130, I know. Mm -hmm. So thanks to a broken organ, we have a pretty incredible story about Silent Night. Yeah, we do. I mean, you know, uh, Christmas Eve Mass about 200 years ago in Obendorf, Austria, uh, a 20-something-year-old priest who was conducting his first Christmas Eve service went to the church. He had built that service around music and the organ didn't work. There are all kinds of legends about why it didn't work, including mice eating the bellows. Uh, From what I can gather, it was just an old organ that had played out. It had been having problems for years, and they just hadn't gotten it fixed. And the priest, you know, Joseph Moore, was in a panic. He ran over to his friend, a schoolteacher, Franz Gruber's small apartment, and and was just going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You can imagine how panicked he was because it was just a couple hours before the service. And Gruber said, I'll play guitar with your songs. We can do that with the choir. And Moore said, no, the, the music I picked out and the choirs I have learned doesn't go with the guitar. And they said, well, there's bound to be something else we can do. And the priest remembered two years before while visiting his uncle in another part of the country, walking home on a New Year's Eve, he had been inspired to write a poem. He actually went back to his apartment and found that poem. How many of us have written something and put it away and never been able to find it again? I think the miracle here is he was actually knew <laughs> where his poem was. Yeah. He brought it back. Gruber, Gruber wrote music for it. And it literally became the song in Obendorf, Austria, that saved that Christmas Eve service. Well, um, three or four weeks later, a man came by to fix the organ. This man asked, what did you do for music and, at Christmas Eve? And the priest sang him the song and copied down the words for him. And this man learned the melody and left. The organ had been fixed. Well, imagine you're this priest and you're middle-aged and it's 30, 35 years later and you're walking down a street in a large German city and you hear the song that saved your service all those years before being sung by a choir in a church. And you're going, how did this happen? 
I mean, he, this guy didn't publish the song. He didn't take it anywhere else. He didn't use it again. How did it happen? Well, the man who fixed the organ became the Johnny Appleseed of Silent Night and taught it in every community where he went. Publishers heard it. They picked it up and translated it into all these different languages. And by the time the priest found out that the world knew his song, it was being sung in the United States. It's a miraculous story about one person using one song from an old poem to save a service and then another person hearing that story and thinking that story and that song meant so much that he taught it to other people. It's kind of like witnessing, if you think about it in that respect, and the way that you can touch one person, that person touches another, and you never know what you've shared and where it will stop. And by the way, the most interesting thing I think about this whole story is the name of the church where Moore was a priest was St. Nicholas. <laughs> I think that sounds like one of those lightning in a bottle stories. That you, oh, it does. You, you it write does. a song it, in no time and put it together, and Kapawi, you've got Silent Night. I, I think you could honestly say, now it takes it took a lot longer back then, that this is the equivalent of something going viral on YouTube right now. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, literally it took 30 or 40 years to do it. But, the, you know, that was 30 or 40 years was not much back then. So, I mean, you know, that's how it goes. And also realize that Silent Night is the Jesus Love Me of Christmas songs. More people know Silent Night than any other carol. More people have sung Silent Night than any other carol. Yes, White Christmas is is the best-selling record of all time. You might have even more plays on, on the Mariah Carey hit now on All I Want for Christmas, but no song has been sung more than Silent Night. And an interesting thing, we're talking about St. Nicholas, uh, Do You Hear What I Hear was written by a Frenchman who came to the United States uh, not knowing any English at all. He was a survivor of World War II. He was in a concentration camp at one point. Uh, he came to this country and met a woman who was playing piano at a hotel who spoke no French. He spoke no English. And nevertheless, they somehow communicated and fell in love and got married and ended up being a songwriting team. And one of the songs they wrote was was based on the war in Vietnam and this man's fear that that war would become the next world war. And he wrote, do you hear what I hear in hopes that possibly people would listen and it would help, you know, change the focus to a, a time of peace, a time of worship. And the song was remarkable and became a monster hit and is still sung to this day. It is said that people, when they first heard it, pulled their cars off to the side of the road just to listen to it in the in the 60s. The th reason I compare it to, you know, uh, Silent Night is Silent Night was written in St. Nicholas. The writers of this song are named Noel and Gloria. Oh, wow. <laughs> a great story, Ace. So here's a... Well, I'm trying to think of the song that includes the words figgy pudding. Ah, yeah, we won't leave until we get some. We yeah. wish you a Merry Christmas. Oh, we yeah. wish you a Merry Christmas. Yeah, that's it. But th yeah, this, yeah, this has got some uh, violence in it, doesn't it? Oh, this is a song that was sung by drunk, drunken men running around the streets of London, Boston, New York City, and others back when Christmas was a time of, of violence, a time of... Uh, it was Mardi Gras on steroids. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it was in, in the United States and, and, and in the British Empire for centuries. Uh, and... Children, children stayed home. I mean, uh, wives, women stayed home, and these men would go around singing the songs first in England and in the United States, and they would inject into this song whatever they wanted. You know, you mentioned figgy pudding. That's probably not what they were asking for. Right. They were asking, they were asking for ale or money or or things like that. 
And, and so uh, what changed all of that, by the way, was when two things happened. One, in England, uh, Prince Albert married Queen Victoria and brought the, the, the German customs to England, which, in, which focused on family which were truly Christian in their in their outreach, not, not based on drunken parties. And in the United States, what changed it was a man, uh, a preacher, ironically enough, writing a poem for his children so his children could learn about the Eastern European uh, customs of Christmas. And he wrote a visit from St. Nick, which we know now as Twas the Night Before Christmas. And that poem was printed in newspapers across the United States. And within 10 years, people were actually having Protestant churches in the United States were having services. And, and the focus, because of Santa Claus and St. Nick bringing presents to children, focused on children because department stores use that poem to help get people actively buying their children Christmas presents. So in a way, we talked about Santa earlier having Christian DNA when it comes to St. Nicholas and King Winslow's. He also had an impact in this poem of of making Christmas a real holiday in the United States. But because, before all of that happened, you have to understand, uh, Congress and the government was open on Christmas Day. Uh, they didn't recognize the holiday either. And then when the focus became on children, suddenly the, the Christmas that we know today um, started to evolve. And, and we can think, a man named Albert and then a preacher who wrote a poem called A Visit from St. Nick for Helping turn Christmas into the holiday it is in England and the United States. Now, it's hard for any of us to believe that Christmas has evolved in how we celebrate it. Seems it like evolved, the... rather, evolved rather quickly. I mean, 1840 was not that long ago. No, it's uh, true. And so I always tell people, if you want an old-fashioned Christmas, you don't need to go back more than about 150 years. Yeah. Uh, now, now, the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church in the United States had Christmas Eve services, so not everybody ignored it. But because of the violence, most Protestant groups ignored Christmas until about that time. Mm-hmm. Ace, what is the story behind Go Tell It on the Mountain? Uh, that's one of uh, the Negro spirituals that were written by who knows which slave here in the United States. And, and you know, we talked about this in church a couple of weeks ago, and, and there's such joy in that song. There is such a spirit of go and share. And I, I think maybe that song catches the enthusiasm because these people who wrote it, this man or woman or the, this group of people who wrote the song and first sang the song, had no opportunity to ever be free here on earth and no opportunity, therefore, to to be looked upon as equals on earth. And yet Jesus looked upon all people as equals and believing in Jesus gave them grace and gave them hope if it's not in this life, in the next life, that they would know joy and and, and be loved fully and completely. And and so that's something that's exciting to tell other people who are, are enslaved as well. And so that song was, you know, written by someone who wasn't free, but shared the message of the man who came to make all of us secure and get, bring us hope and bring us light and give us freedom. And so it uh, is thankfully one of the Negro spirituals. There were th- tens of thousands that were written and sung, but it's one of the few hundred that that still exist. Um, and we can probably think a man named Work, who worked at Fisk University, was a professor there who went around say, finding Negro spirituals, listening to him and writing it down for saving that song for us. Mm-hmm. Talk about We Three Kings of Orient Are. 
Yeah, written over 100 years ago by a preacher who later regretted writing the song. Really? And why, why, why? do you regret writing the song? Because he wrote it for his kids. He did never intend on getting it published. Oh. People heard it. They wanted it. It was published, and he spent his life regretting that he had created this legend of three magi coming True. to visit Jesus. When we don't know how many magi, we just know there were three gifts. Yeah. And then within 10 years of writing the song, suddenly people were naming these mag magi and, <laughs> and creating all these legends. And, and, he, and he kind of felt bad that he had kind of upset the, the real theology uh, of it by creating three kings because of three gifts. And so uh, became one of the first great children's songs, probably the best children's song that we know that was written for children. Uh, at Christmas uh, was written by uh, a preacher named Brooks, who actually was the pastor. I'd had the services for Abraham Lincoln after he was assassinated, and Brooks was so upset by Lincoln being assassinated, he left his um, he left his church and his ministry behind and went to Europe. And he was traveling uh, in the Middle East on Christmas Eve and decided he wanted to go to Bethlehem. He was in Jerusalem. He rented a horse. And that's the first thing, time I found out you could actually rent horses like you do cars. And rode into uh, Bethlehem and, and arrived in Bethlehem at sunrise on Christmas morning, this little tiny town back then, and sat down and wrote this song, this poem at that time about that experience. He brought it back when he resumed his his ministry in, in Baltimore, Maryland, and taught it to a children's choir. And that's why we have a little town of Bethlehem. It was not only inspired by going into this town, an American going into this town, but it was the moment that he regained his faith and became a, one of the most important pastors again in the United States. Oh, what a great story. Ace Collins is my guest. His book has stories behind the best-loved songs of Christmas. If you've got a song that maybe you've loved, maybe you've always wondered about its origin or maybe its meaning, and it's been a song that you have sung for decades, and you thought, eh, I'm going to ask Ace about that. Let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Talking about Christmas music today with Ace Collins. He's written a book called Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas. And I would love uh, to talk about A Holy Night. Yeah. A Holy Night has four remarkable stories behind it. It's, it was written about 180 years ago. It was an assignment literally given by a parish priest in, in France to one of his parishioners um, who to write a poem for the Christmas Eve services. The man wrote that poem on the way to Paris. He liked the poem so much, he leaned, and I literally mean leaned on a friend of his who wrote operas to write some music for it. The friend didn't feel qualified to do so, but evidently this man leaned hard enough that it was, the, the music was written. And so rather than premiering as a poem, it premiered as a song and within five years it swept France. And that's when the Catholic Church in France 
opted that it was too secular huh. to appear in a service. Now, you listen to Holy Night, you're going, how is that possible? You know, and and what it amounts to is they the church found out the man who wrote the music was Jewish. And uh, that kind of ruled it out of, of being a church song in their mind. And, and so um, they... The song was continued to sung, but it was not it was not sung in church anymore. It was brought to the United States a few years later, but not as a Christmas song. It was brought here as a part of the abolitionist movement. Um, the reason is the third verse goes this way: Truly, He taught us to love one another. His law is love, and His gospel is peace. Chains shall He break, for the slave is our brother, and in His name all oppression shall cease became a uh, important song in the abolitionist movement till after the Civil War when Americans adopted it as a Christmas song. And then there's another wonderful element of this song. In 1906, a man in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania did the impossible. He had worked for Marconi and Marconi had explained to Fessenden that you could not ever develop a transmitter that would wirelessly transmit the human voice. You couldn't have find anything that was powerful enough to do that. Fessenden was challenged. He developed one, and on Christmas Eve, 1906, he actually stu stunned people, if you will, in newsrooms and on ships and other things who were listening for wireless transmissions of Morse code over their speakers, and instead got his voice reading the second chapter of Luke, and then he picked up a violin, and the very first song ever played on the radio was Oh Holy Night. Amazing. And, uh, you know, and it also stopped a war one time because a Frenchman jumped out of a foxhole on the Prussian war and started singing it. And both sides stopped shooting for 24 hours. So Silent Night did that in World War I as well. But that became the first song that, to my knowledge, that ever at least brought peace on earth for at least a brief amount of time. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's good. There is something I want to mention because I, I know we don't have a lot of time and, and I'll answer any other questions you want. When people listen to it, and I've done a, several books on Christmas music, so the, the one we're talking about is not the only one. In, in a book called More Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas, we touch upon a song that was a rock and roll hit for Roy Orbison called Pretty Paper. And I want people to listen to Pretty Paper this year. Uh, Willie Nelson wrote that song back when he was starving to death. And it, everybody thinks it's a love song because they don't listen to the music, music. And it's, you know, and the, the the chorus does go, pretty paper, pretty ribbons of blue, wrap your presents to your darling from you, pretty pencils to write I love you, pretty paper, pretty ribbons of blue. But if you listen to the verse, it's about a homeless man. And people are not stopping to reach out to the least of these at Christmas. And the verse goes this way, crowded street, busy feet, hustled by him, Downtown shoppers, Christmas is nigh. There he sits all alone on the sidewalk, hoping that you won't pass him by. Should you stop, better not, much too busy. You're in a hurry, my, how time does fly. In the distance, the ringing of laughter. And in the midst of the laughter, he cries. Hmm. That is one of the most powerful songs that no one ever realizes what it says. And, and Willie Nelson told, told me that when I asked him about writing it, that he was literally living on ketchup sandwiches back then. And he was literally that guy on the street hoping someone would stop, talk mm. to him and share a good word of cheer or perhaps buy him a meal. Wow. And, and at Christmas, I think that's a lesson 
that we all need to think about. And so that's one of the challenges. Christmas music not only brings us in focus with with the birth of Christ, but I think also a lot of music brings us in the focus of how we should live like him as well. Mm-hmm. Ace, here's a question from an inquisitive mind. Ask Ace, ask Ace what the... Uh, what what would be the the most sacred carol of all time? Well, that that would be opinionated. You know, to me, I love a holy night. It's it's the song that probably speaks to me as well as others. I, I think if you go back to the song that has been sung the longest and has touched the most people, it's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, the seven verses look at the seven different ways that Jesus impacted the world, and um, Therefore, it is a perfect song for Advent. And so I, I don't think we could top the message uh, of that song. And, and the mere fact, if you listen to it closely, you can hear the monks who wrote that song singing it in some little obs- obscure stone chapel somewhere, and you can hear their voices echoing off the wall. Mm-hmm. The other thing about that song is we still sing that song the very same way that it was sung 1,100 years ago. And most of our carols have been matched to different music over the time. And so lyrics and and music have changed, but O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, other than the fact that we're not singing it in Latin, has remained the same. Yeah. One of the songs I love singing is Joy to the World. Yeah, Joy to the World, which is, you know, really uh, kind of an Old Testament view of, 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 what, of what, came to, uh, what came to the earth in the light of Christ. And, and it, it's another one that uh, is very uplifting. And I think of all the songs, if you could consider all the hymns, you hear about, you know, most of the th- sing- things we sing about in secular music are, I mentioned Willie Nelson's song, Wasn't Happy, but are very uplifting and happy, be it rocking around the Christmas tree or Jingle Bell Rock or Jingle Bells or whatever. But, you know, when you talk about joy to the world, this is one of the carols that is really, really a happy, happy song. It's it's not introspective. It is the moment that Christ is born it's joyful. You know, that, uh, supposedly there was a legend that every bell on earth rang the moment Christ was born. I, I, you know, that's, I'm sure that's just a fairy tale and a legend, and it, but it did inspire Carol of the Bells, and it also does capture the joy that is in joy to the world. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think when I hear a Christmas song, my mind goes quicker to the artist that's singing it than to the lyrics in the song. So when I think of a song like Silver Bells, I just hear Bing. Yeah, and and you probably shouldn't. You should be hearing Bob Hope, but okay. <laughs> uh, because okay. Bob didn't have Bob didn't have the hit on it, but he premiered that song in his movie The Lemon Drop Kid, and just never got around to recording it. And t- and Bing kept waiting for Bob to record it, and Bob said he was going to and didn't. And so Bing went in and recorded it, and Bob Hope, who desperately wanted a Christmas hit, <laughs> instead ended up with. Uh, a song he should have had a hit on, and it became associated with Bing Crosby. Was like, and Bing's last great Christmas, Christmas hit was a Bob Hope song. That, wow. there, there's, a, there's an irony there, as good of friends as they were, and, and as, as much of a rivalry as they had with each other. By the way, the original, the songwriters thought they had written something very, very special when they wrote that song. They went back to their wives, and they sang that song to their wives, and the wives literally fell off the couch laughing. And oh, they were wow. going, it's a serious song. Why are you laughing? And and they said, because the name of the song is so funny, they had written this song about a little bell that was on their desk. And so rather than Silver Bells, the song that they sang to their wives was Tinkle Bell, Tinkle Bell, It's Christmas Time in the City. 
And <laughs> one of the wives made the comment, you really need to change the title. And so they changed it to Silver Bells, and that's the way we know it today. Probably Tinkerbell, probably, Tinkerbell probably would not have become the hit that Silver Bells did. Yeah. What a treasure. Ace, thank you so much for taking uh, time to spend with the Faith Radio family, and we have so enjoyed uh, this hour together, and talking about it's music ca- is a very happy thing to do. It's kind of become a Christmas tradition, tradition every year to be with you, and I hope it continues it because I indeed. enjoy it so much. It will indeed. Ace Collins, thank you so much, and have a very blessed Merry Christmas and a happy Christmas to you and your family. And a mighty Christmas to all our listeners. Indeed. Thank you so much. All right, Ace Collins has been my guest. Again, the name of his book is Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas. That's all for today. I'm looking forward to tomorrow already. Rob Blue is going to join me as well as Dr. Michael Youssef and then a full hour with Jeff Ferdor. And that's what's on the program for tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. And I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.